Open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. The title means second law or the second giving of the law. It's from the Greek, duto meaning two, namos meaning law. Genesis also gets its name from Greek. I'm choosing those words carefully. Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament. But a few hundred years before Jesus was born, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language, and that is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, you'll see it written down as LXX. Because it was 70 people, the LXX means 70, 50 is the L, X is 10, X is 10. 70 people who worked on the translation. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And when Jesus quotes from the Bible, he's actually quoting a translation. He quotes from the Septuagint. Throughout the Gospels, he's quoting the Septuagint. Paul also quotes from the Septuagint. He doesn't quote from the original Hebrew. And Deuteronomy is the name in the Septuagint, as is Genesis. Genesis is a Greek word. It means beginning or origin. And that's now the word in English. We just took it right across and just took Genesis, Genesis. And the same thing with Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. This remarkable book deserves our attention. And if you have ever read this book and thought, oh, it's boring, it's a list of laws, I want to cure you of that tonight. And I want to give you keys So that you will be able to open the book up and work your way through it without feeling like it is locked. Years ago, there was a man who wrote a commentary in the book of Romans and he called it Romans Unlocked. When I read a review of that commentary, the reviewer said, no one ever told me the book of Romans was locked. But perhaps you feel like some of the laws, Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy, are a little bit locked. What do we do with this? I'd like to give you keys to unlock this marvelous book. So let's begin in chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'll give history as we go. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 1, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel where... On this side of Jordan, in the wilderness. Okay, let's stop right there. He has passed through the 40 years of wandering. In Exodus, the entire book of Exodus, well, 38 chapters or so of Exodus, take the time when Moses comes to Egypt and those few months or weeks while he's dealing with Pharaoh and then leading the people out to Sinai. And then the book of Exodus is done, so it only covers a few months, except for the very beginning chapters. And then Leviticus takes only a week or so. It's revealed to Moses while he is in Mount Sinai, at the end of the book of Exodus. And then Numbers, it splits. The first 19 chapters are when Moses is still at Sinai. And the next Chapters, 17 chapters, from chapter 20 to chapter 36, it skips 38 years while all of those people were dying in the wilderness because they did not obey God. 
So that entire generation is lost and basically nothing is recorded about those people. And suddenly from Numbers chapter 20, already we're at the very end. All those years are lost. All the days and months and weeks and family growth and funerals, all lost to history. The end of Numbers has four battles that take place within six months time. Three of them are defensive. They are attacked and they defend themselves. One of them is offensive. And the reason it's offensive is God is telling them, you need to begin to conquer the land because two and a half of the tribes are going to stay on the east side of Jordan. Two of those battles were with the Ammonites, Og, the king of Bashan, or Bashan, and Sihon. Now, these two were great battles, and you will find them listed throughout the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then again in Joshua, as they're remembering how they conquered those great kings and their armies. Even in the Psalms, you'll see all the way through the Psalms, he'll say, don't you remember the way we conquered Og and Sihon, those two kings? And what he's doing to them is reminding them how great the battles were and how they conquered them. He'll do it again right here in Deuteronomy. And the reason he does it is God did a great thing for his people and they need to remember what he did. Look at it. It's right here. Look at verse 2. There are 11 days journey from Horeb. Horeb is the word that Deuteronomy uses. Sinai is the word that Exodus uses, but it's the same mountain. When I say it's the word that it uses, Deuteronomy uses Horeb almost consistently, but I think there's two times when it uses Sinai, and Exodus uses Sinai almost consistently, but I think it's one or two times when Moses writes Horeb. But in general, it's Sinai and Exodus, Horeb in Deuteronomy, but it's the same mountain. In Genesis, it's called Moriah. Well, look here. I'm sorry, it's not called Moriah in Genesis. It's called something else in Genesis. What is the name in Genesis? I cannot recall. There are, verse 2, there are 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. And it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel. Oh, what year is this? 40th year. The 11th month. In the 5th month, Aaron died, and then right after that, they fight their battles. So it's been about six months since they went out and fought their battles, and look what he does right here at the beginning. Verse 4, after he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, he's going to bring up those men again and again. They're going to come up in these chapters. Deuteronomy, just now. He wants them to remember what he has done. Look at verse 5. On this side, Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to declare this law, saying. If you have a pen, you may want to underline that little phrase. Moses began to declare this law. Does anyone need a pen tonight? Because what you're going to find in the book of Deuteronomy, here's one of the keys. Ready? Now, there's several doors, okay? There's a security door, and there's an inside door, and there's a screen door. 
<clears throat> one of the keys to this book is this. Seven times you're going to find a phrase like that. Moses began to declare the law. Let's see those phrases. Chapter 1, and the first one is right there at the end of verse 5. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Who can read that, that uh, beginning of chapter 5, verse 1? And you'll see it's the same kind of thing happening here. Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. Did I say Matthew? Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. Well, who does Moses call? Oh, it sounds like what we just read back there, chapter 1, verse 5. Now jump way up to chapter 27. Jump. Chapters 5 to 26 are the second speech that he gives. 27, verse 1. This is speech number 3. It's the blessings and curses. Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. It's Moses with who? Oh, back in five, it's Moses who teaches the people. Now it's Moses with who? All the elders. So what's going to happen is Moses is going to talk to them. Go to chapter 29. 29. Verse 2. 29 verse 2. Moses calls all Israel. He wants to talk to them again. And here, if you look at 29 verse 1, he wants to summarize the words of the covenant. Go to chapter 31. This is speech number 5. 20, 31 verse 1. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel. And read verse 2, just the beginning. Well, that's good. What you see here now is Moses is becoming more personal. He's not been personal up to this point. If you go back and read those speeches, he's not personal. He's telling them this is what God's done and this is what you've done. But now he gets a little personal in chapter 31, almost the very end. Now, I count chapter 31 as one speech. But maybe you want to count it as four speeches. Look at chapter 31. Can you guess where the next one starts? Look at verse 7. 31 verse 7. Moses called out to who? Well, he called to Joshua and says to him in front of all Israel. Now I'm counting that as part of the speech that starts in verse 1. Does that make sense? But if you want to count it as two speeches, I'm okay. Look down at verse 9. Moses wrote this law and did what? The sons of Levi. I'm still counting verse 9 as the same speech. If you want to count it as the third speech in chapter 31, I'm still okay. Look at verse number 10. Moses commanded them saying, down to verse 14. What do you see there? The Lord says to Moses. Now I'm counting all of that as one speech. The transfer of authority from Moses to Joshua. 
the number of speeches is not nearly as important as the succession of speeches. What you've got in this book is a Bible conference. You've got an Israeli Bible conference at the end of Moses' life. How would a man preach if he's about to die? Like Richard Baxter, I preached as a dying man to dying men. He said those words when he was very sick and thought that he would die. In fact, he didn't know if he could get off his bed, so they called a conference where he was supposed to be the speaker, and he writes to them and says, I don't know if I can come. (coughs) This is Richard Baxter (coughs) in the 1600s in England, and they write back to him and say, if you can come, great. If you can't come, we'll make a plan. So you can tell us at the last minute. At the last minute, he comes. But before he comes, he writes, I preached as a dying man to dying men. Baxter was very sick, so that in his autobiography he wrote, I am sometimes unsure if any man has had more physical problems than me. That might be a little overspeak, but the point is this. He was commonly sick. He lived till he was about, what, 76 or 78? He wrote 140 books. So maybe that's what constant sickness does to you. It makes you do something for God. Maybe we need to all pray that we get COVID and do something more for the Lord. So here's Baxter saying, I preached as a dying man to dying men, but Moses is actually a dying man. He's been told by God two times, you're going to die. In the book of Numbers at the very end, God says to him, now finish this up, gather the people, and then you're going to die. How would you like that if God tells you up front, you're going to die? And Moses is going to tell them, My eyes still see just as well as they did 40 years ago. I'm 120. My hand is still as strong as it was. My foot still walks with the same strength. You say, well, I feel like I'm a young man still. You're going to die. Just finish this Bible conference. You better preach well. How long would you preach if you knew your funeral was coming just after? But more seriously, how would you preach? If you had seen the face of God and you know... In moments, in a few days, I'm going to see God again. You might take your content a little more seriously. Some pastors who just say whatever comes to their mind, or, oh, the Spirit led me. Are you so sure the Spirit led you? You're going to have to meet that Spirit very soon. You'd better be sure what you're saying is what he said to say, because he's listening, and you're going to have to talk to him about it. That's what Moses is saying. He's got this Bible conference with seven sermons, if you follow my count. The next speech, actually, the introduction begins in, verse 30, in chapter 31. Look at chapter 31 and verse 16. This is really remarkable because it's actually a song. 31, 16. Stop. The Lord talks to Moses and says, you're going to die, but I'm telling you what's going to happen. These people are bad, and they're going to turn away. So what should you do? What should happen? Look at verse 17. What's going to happen to God's anger? I'm going to get angry at them because they're not going to obey. So what should you do? Here's what you should do, verse 22. Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. 
Moses teaches them to sing about their sin. What kind of tune would you have? I can just see people now saying, oh, don't bring that song. That's not fun. This is inspired music by God. All of chapter 32 is this song they are supposed to learn. Look at verse 30, chapter 31, verse 30. Moses spoke in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were over. Can you imagine? This is a long song. Can you imagine getting through eight verses and someone says, hey, that's enough, let's do more later. No, we're going through it all. Can you imagine going 20 verses in? I, I don't like this song. This isn't my kind of song. We're singing the song. You're going to learn it all. They're singing, if you read this song, they're singing, we are going to leave our God. He will get angry with us. What would happen to you if you sang a song like that? You might take repentance and confession and your Christian life more seriously. We choose songs that make us feel good. We choose songs. Why do we sing song number 25 in our book so much? Because you like the music. I like it too. There is a fountain. Oh, that piano. And then the key change at the end. Isn't it great? Robbie said he can often hear us when we're singing that one. I wonder what would happen if we began singing a song like this. Oh, God, save us because I'm sure we're going to turn away from you this week. You will get angry at us because we are such a twisted, wicked, confused, backward people. Number one, the choir would empty out quickly. People would stop coming back Sunday night. Who wants that kind of spirituality? This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it's right at the end of Moses' life. What a song. Keep going to chapter 33. The final speech. It's a long song as you'll notice. Chapter 33. Verse 1, and this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And then follows a blessing on Israel. That's the seventh speech, Moses' blessing. So what we have in this book is a series of seven speeches. Oh no, I'm not done. That was my introduction. Now we've got to go back through and see what's in the speeches. Here's the key. When you're going through this book and you're saying, I don't understand Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. What's happening? Why are we giving the law? It's all repetition. What's the point of the repetition? You're forgetting what's happening. It's been 40 years since they had the first law. They don't have a cum books on the corner. They don't have Augustine book room. They don't have copies. In fact, Moses probably wrote all these words down in little sections or at the very end just before his death. These people haven't even seen a copy of the Torah, of the law of God. They've only heard it as Moses told them. They had to hear all of this, the first five books of the Bible, 20.4% of all the words in the Bible. They had to hear that and remember it. How would you do? Some of the rabbis count 613 laws in the Pentateuch, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. 613. 
If you say that's a lot of laws, well, just consider that depending on the counts of how many laws there are, America has almost a million. So 613 sounds like I could take care of that in, in my kindergarten year of political science. Sounds like a great law degree. Compare 613 to a million. These laws have to be given because the people have already forgotten and they are going to forget. These laws have to be given a second time because of what people are like right at their core. We are all short-term, temporary, changeful people. We will turn faster than a Porsche. We can stop and change in a moment. We are all bipolar. Just get married to someone and see how quickly they change. Bipolar is that medical condition I mentioned this morning. Psychological condition where people have drastic mood swings. Bipolar describes 99% of the people in the world. Just get married to someone and say, wow, she changed. What's happening? That's called life. Ask her if you've ever changed. Oh, no, I'm sure you're perfectly steady because you're the consistent one. I'm sure. I'll just ask her. We're all like that, and that's why the law has to be given again. You've got a whole group of people that weren't there at Sinai. And they've heard some stories, but they need to hear the law. So Moses is going to preach to them. What does he say? Let's go back and see. Go back to chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, and let's get this remarkable, wonderful book in these seven speeches. First of all, the first speech is history. So if you're making notes, you can put these right in your Bible. I've written them all down in my Bible so I won't forget them. The first speech is history. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the history of the wandering. He's going to tell this new generation what happened to their fathers. Chapter 1 and 2 and 3 is this history he tells them all the things that he had said previously. And there are many fascinating verses. These first three chapters remind us of the value of history. Moms and dads, you've got to teach your children history. History of the church, history of the Bible, history of the world. They should know the history of South Africa. They should know what the Anglo-Boer War is and when it happened and why. They, know what the, they should know what the Mfichani is. Where the Zulus crushed the Ndebele, which is why Ndebele's live mostly in Zimbabwe now. They should know that. They should know what happened with the Shangans and the Tsongas. And when the Vendas came down and how they split from the Shonas. We should study history. It's right here. We've got to know history. If we forget history, we are doomed to repeat it. Well, this amazing first sermon has a key verse. There's so much in here, but for time, I'm just going to skip, skip, skip. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are history, fascinating history. By the way, the chapters here are just like every good historian. Don't ever think that all history books are the same. History books are divided on two points. 
the selection of the author and the framing of the author. All authors choose, I'm going to talk about this, I'm not going to talk about that. So if you hate white people, you'll say, I'll talk about the bad things Van Riebeek did, but I won't say any of the good things Van Riebeek did, right? If you love that side and you hate the other side, you'll say, I'll only talk about the good things Van Riebeek did, won't talk about any of the bad things. Well, he was a man like you, he did some good and some bad, just like you and every other person you like and name airports for in Durban, though they murdered two million black people. So, so we see here, there's selection and then there's framing. You've got to notice the framing. That is, when the author writes, does he make you feel like that guy's a bad person or does he make you feel like that person's a good person? Read this account. It's fascinating the way Moses frames the situation because he always frames the people of Israel as if, they are backsliding, stubborn, twisted, and depraved. You wouldn't do that. If an Afrikaner wrote a history of the Afrikaans people, would he write about how, how bad they were? He'd put in there all the good things they did. If a Venda guy writes a history of the Venda people, what's he going to put in there? How good they do. But look in the Bible. You know it's written by God. Because no one else would write this way. He writes about how bad they are, but not just them. He writes about how bad everyone is, <clears throat> but there's so much in there. So I got, I've got to skip chapters one, two, and three are the history. Chapter four is the applications of Moses first sermon. Moses is giving a speech or a sermon and he's preaching to all the people and he gives them their history. Chapters one, two, three, and chapter four is the applications so if you're studying to be a preacher, maybe this is good evidence for why you would say, I'm going to teach the passage and then put my applications at the end. That's what Moses does. Look at the application, which is also the key verse of the book. Verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. We'll start back a little bit earlier in verse 7. For what nation is there so great who has God so near to them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him? Verse 8. What nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I said before you today? Wow. So all of the nations of the world are supposed to look at the law of God and say, that's got to be the one true God. Read history. No one had laws like this. Hammurabi's code, it's not, nothing like this. It's, it's Judaism because it's revealed by God that has the first great law code. But here's the key verse, verse 9. Look at verse 9. Only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. How should you keep your soul? So that you do not do something. You're going to be prone to do something. What are you going to do? The things which your eyes have seen. And as soon as you forget what your eyes have seen, what's going to happen to them next? They will depart from your heart all the days of your life. And you will not be able to... Look in verse. Look right there in the verse. And you will not be able to do what? Teach them to your sons and who? Your grandchildren. This is multi-generational faith. 
God is not concerned. Well, I'm a believer. My children have to make the choice. No, you're a believer and your whole heart and your whole life, everything you do should be for that child. I've got to make sure that child is not accepted in the greatest medical school or the greatest school here. Or the No, what I'm doing for that child is I'm going to make sure everything in me, when I wake up, when I go to bed, when I live, when I breathe, everything I think about is how can these kids Take it into their hearts so they won't forget. I've got to pass on the faith. That is my great goal in life. If I never drive a BM or a Mercedes, if I never have a nice car or a big house, if my kids take my faith, I'm half successful. What's the other half? Their kids. If I can get gray hair and pick up some babies and hear a five-year-old from Cali or from Carson say, hey, Grandpa, here's the voice I learned. Oh, God, that's all I want. Let me live in a shack. Let my Bucky always be breaking down. That part has already happened. (laughs) But only let my kids love the Lord. Is there not a man here who can say amen to that? Is there not a young father who says, that's what I want? That's the key verse. That's the application. Moses says, I'm teaching you the history because of one thing. We've got to get generational Christianity. We're losing our children because the dads are devoted to the Porsche. They are devoted to the retirement fund. And they say, oh, but I've done right. I'm a good dad. I'm paying for my kids to go down to Vitz. I'm paying for my kids to go overseas. My boy's going to Cambridge. I mean, what more can I do? You can take your boy to church on Sunday night. And you can pray with him and fast with him and let him see. My dad, when he does wrong, he comes to me and says, Hey, I just want you to know, I was wrong last week. And I've, I've, I've been cut about it. I just want you to forgive me. You can walk with God so that your boy knows there's nothing more valuable than religion. That's Moses' application. It's the key verse. Because he says, don't let them, what? Forget. Look at the very next verse, verse 10. Especially. Does your Bible say remember at verse 10? What's the first word of the ESV? How. The NASB puts in the word remember, but they put it in italics because it's not in Hebrew. The King James says specially. Do you see there's a connection between verse 10 and verse 9? He tells them, don't forget especially uh, these kinds of things. Nasby just makes it easy and says, remember this. Look at verse 10. Remember what? Remember the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb when the Lord said to you, gather me the people together and I will make them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may do what? It's almost like that's a theme, right? The first speech sets the pattern for all the others. It's this. He gives history, then applications, and the great goal is don't forget. That's that's the key word in this book. Forget or remember. Remember is used more times in Deuteronomy than any book of the Bible except Psalms. But Psalms is much longer. Forget is used more times in Deuteronomy, than any book of the Bible. And forget and remember go together, right? All the way through this book, he tells them, do not forget, just remember. Do not forget, remember, remember. Hey, hey, you're starting to forget. 
In fact, the whole structure of the book says forget and remember. So even if you didn't see those words, what's the point? 40 years have passed. Moses is about to do what? He's about to die. God says, I'm giving you my word in a series of sermons. So it may have happened over a week. There are seven after all. It may have happened over two weeks. Don't forget this. Here's the first sermon. The next day, God gives Moses a word. Call all the people together. Back they go and they call the group together. Hey, hey, focus. If you want to close the windows, you can. But let's try not to be distracted. So the whole structure of the book is this. You've got to remember. You've got to guard yourself against forgetting. Brothers and sisters, forgetting is one of the greatest dangers in all of life. Because forgetting does not tempt you like lust. When lust comes, there is an object for you to be drawn after. But when forgetting comes, there's no object that draws you. It is Satan's great key. He says, I know, because when I get you to forget, I'm not telling you, look at that car. Look at that girl. Look back at yourself. When Satan tempts you to forget, he's saying, I just relax and don't look. Close your eyes. Take a little rest. You deserve a break. And how much easier is it in the age of distraction when every one of us has a pocket computer that dings with notifications from every kind of app This danger of forgetting was a great danger to the Jews. How much more for us? We have every voice telling us, this is the truth, this is the truth. Watch out, you're going to forget the main thing. Or you're going to take some small thing. This is a great danger too. You'll take a small thing and you'll make it a very, very big thing. And then the real big thing, you'll quietly forget. Like the cross of Christ, Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. And I think I hear someone in another denomination saying, I want to talk to you, for example, about the Sabbath. Okay. And the next week, I want to talk to you about the Sabbath. And again the next week. And when does the cross of Christ come out of your mouth? When is it on your mind? When is your heart devoted and directed to the cross of Christ? Or another church, well, women have to wear the head covering. Okay, let's talk about that. And then the next week it comes up. And then another month. Or politics. Or whatever your pet doctrine is. It's the cross that ought to be remembered. It is very easy for us. We have such weak judgment to take a very small thing and say, ooh, (laughs) I'll expand this because I kind of lean that way. So I'll expand it into a big thing. I hate abortion. But we we ought not to have every sermon on abortion. We ought not to give 30% of our budget to fighting abortion. It's a terrible sin. But we should keep our, our focus the way it ought to be because by expanding political action or by expanding music or by expanding culture or by expanding this or this or whatever the issue is, the, the end times, the antichrist, speaking in tongues, the spiritual gifts, by expanding whatever it is, 
to a degree past what the Bible has, we are in danger of forgetting the great thing of the cross. And this is our constant danger as Christians to always keep Christ, the Son of God, the cross, repentance, humility, and heaven. That those themes always have to be great. And if we can just keep those theme, things, themes great, probably we'll keep the other things at the right levels that they should be. Well, the key verse here is Deuteronomy 4.9. He's going to say 24 more times in this book, forget and remember. But let's go quickly now. Now that we've seen the first speech, go to the second speech in chapter 5. Look at the second speech. Chapter 5 is going to go from here to chapter 26. Did you hear that? 22 chapters. When I say it's the second speech, what I mean is this. We're going to have to go 22 chapters before we get one of those taglines. Moses called the people together. So is it all one speech? Maybe. It's basically, chapters 5 to 26, is basically summarizing and adding to the book of Exodus. Without the tabernacle. So Exodus has what's called case laws. They are civil and moral. And then Exodus has laws about the priests and the tabernacle. Deuteronomy 5 to 26, those 22 chapters, two-thirds of the book, is basically taking that section of Exodus, repeating it, and adding some more things in, in that category. Maybe it was more than one speech. It doesn't really matter. The point is, Moses takes the law that he had given how many years earlier? 40 years earlier, he brings it back. Here in chapter 5, he's going to give the Ten Commandments a second time. And then look at this remarkable passage at the end of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 5, verse 22. 5.22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly. Where? Oh, that's Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. 40 years ago. God spoke all these words to you from the fire and the cloud and the thick darkness with a great voice. Now, by the way, just try to imagine that. A fire, a cloud, and great darkness. Try to imagine that. Keep going, though. He wrote them in two tables of stones, delivered them to me. Verse 23. It came to pass when you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, for the mountain burnt with fire, that you came near to me, even all your leaders, verse 24, and you said to me, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory and his greatness. We have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God talks with man and he lives. Remember, this is the children of these men. They, they did not see that. They might have heard their fathers or grandfathers, but they did not see that. He's got to tell them what happened 40 years ago because he was there. Look at verse 25. This is still the fathers speaking to Moses. Now, therefore, why should we what? You see, when you experience God, you think you will die. That's not the same as many moderns who say, oh, I've experienced God, and they act like they're riding on a roller coaster at, at um, Gold Reef City. 
We are addicted to entertainment. And so when we come into the church, we pretend that the church is just another kind of avenue of entertainment. Can I remind you that in the old covenant, when men heard God, they didn't see him, they heard him. And they said, we're going to die. Look what they say in verse 25. This great fire will come down off the mountain and burn us all. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we're going to die. Compare that with men today who are always longing after great exotic experiences. These people say, no, no, don't give us God because it's terrifying. Verse 26, it goes on. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and then lived? Verse 27, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God says and speak to the Lord for us. And we will hear it and do it. But then they go on to say, but don't let him talk to us again. Were they rebellious? No, they had actually seen God. This is why Robert Murray McShane, when he was done with his study, walked to the pulpit of his church in his 20s. He died before his 30th birthday. And when he walked to the pulpit, people who listened to him preach said people would be weeping in the congregation before he even opened his mouth to preach because McShane had seen something of God and heard God and knew what it was to fear Jehovah Almighty. And when he came in there, he brought that fear with him and the people knew this is not an ordinary day this is not gold reef city this is not coca-cola classic with less sugar this is the great i am and something in us wants to be here so i would not miss this for the world and i will definitely be back next week and throughout the week i'm gonna pray and read my bible but i've got to admit i'm terrified that's biblical christianity that's true faith And I'll remind you that the counterpart to the Old Testament fear of God in the New Testament is what? In the Old Testament, they spoke of fearing God. In the New Testament, there's a counterpart. What is it? It's faith in Christ. New Testament faith and Old Testament fear of God are actually closely related, like father to son. The Old Testament fear of God is that which will instruct us what real believing faith is like. This is amazing. Chapter 5 begins this way. And then Moses goes through many case laws. There are many death penalties in here. Let me just pull out a few things. We could go chapter by chapter, but for time, we're going to skip over all of these. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. And you will remember. Do you see that? 8-2, remember. Look down at 8-11. Watch out that you do not do what in 8-11? 8-14. Your heart will be lifted up and you will do what? And you see, that's a prophecy. That's not a command. 8.14. Look at chapter 8, verse 14. It's a prophecy. Then what's going to happen is you're going to forget. Chapter 8, verse 18. Then this is a command. You must do what? Look at verse 19. It will be if it happens that you... Forget at all. If you have any, even 1% forgetting. Do you see that in there in verse 19? It will be if you at all forget. If you forget anything. What does the ESV say? If you forget. By any means. By any means? 
What, what, keep, keep, uh, keep going on verse 19, Lloyd. Okay, Nazbi on verse 19. Beware Ever forget. That Hebrew word means even the beginnings of forgetting. If there's even the hint, you even start to move, you start to compromise toward forgetting. Brothers and sisters, forgetting is like sleep. It comes on you when you don't realize it. How many times has my wife said, Seth, you're driving, you're sleeping. No, I'm not. I'm not sleeping at all. <laughs> Seth, I'm seeing your eyes closed. Amy, stop it. I'm wide awake. We don't realize when we're falling asleep. We don't realize when we're forgetting. The best is probably to assume that we're always forgetting and so confess that consistently. Thomas Aquinas, I'm sorry, Thomas Akempis wrote the excellent book, The Imitation of Christ. And toward the end of that book, he has a section on forgetting God and confessing the sin of forgetting God. It's as if he summarized all the book of Deuteronomy for the New Testament. Go further to chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18. In case you've never seen this verse, you need to realize there's a, there's a way in here to judge false, false prophets and true prophets. These days, there's lots of talk about prophets. And you should see and know these laws. Look at 18, verse 15. The Lord your God, chapter 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you what? From your midst. From your brethren, like me. And you will listen to him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. According to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Do not let me hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire that I do not die. The Lord said to me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren. That's the incarnation right there. I'm going to give them a true prophet. I'm going to come down and visit them, but they're terrified when they see me. So I'm going to send someone with flesh and blood like they have. And the people weren't terrified, but what? They hated him. Why'd they hate him? Acts chapter 13 says he went everywhere doing good things. Why would you hate him? He's not in a mountain. He's not burning with fire. He's not filled with darkness and clouds. Why would you hate this prophet when he comes like you? Speaks your language, same skin color. Why would you hate him? What, what reason would there be? Men hate God. It's like what Peter says in Luke 5 verse 8. Depart from me, O Lord, because I am a sinful man. When the miracle of the fishes comes and Peter gets out of the boat and he sees Jesus, he falls on his face and he knows, I'm having an experience like they did 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago on Mount Sinai. Now I see what my father saw. This man just made fish talk. They listened to him. Hundreds of fish just listened to this man. This is not a man like other men. And he falls on his face and says, get away from me. Get away from me. He doesn't say, ooh, I'd like to have this again. Oh, I feel goose flesh. Do, do that chorus once more. He says, this is terrifying. Would you please leave? That's Peter. Perhaps Peter was saved that day. Because Jesus called him to be his disciple right after that. Well, this is what's happening in chapter 18. Look at the prophet. This is a promise of the Messiah. And then in verse 18, I will raise them a prophet from among their brethren, like to them. 
I will put my words in his mouth. He will speak to them all that I will command him. Verse 19, it will come to pass that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak, I will require it of him. If you don't listen to this new prophet, God's going to judge you. Verse 20, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that will speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet will do what? Verse 21, and if you say in your heart, how are we going to know the word which the Lord has spoken? Now that's pretty good, isn't it? I'm really glad there's that verse there in verse 21. Because today, we sometimes have the attitude that we can't judge anyone. We can't judge. I mean, he says he's a prophet, so okay. He told me to move and go down to Joburg, so I got to move. Well, wait a minute. Is he a true prophet? Well, he's a prophet. I mean, he has prophet after his name, and it's on his bumper sticker. How can you tell if he's a true prophet? Verse 22 gives us a very clear way. When T.D. Jakes speaks, I'm sorry, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if a thing does not happen nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, but the prophet has lied about it. You shouldn't be afraid of that one. Jesus requires 100% accuracy. So a few years ago, there was a group of prophets from Kansas City in America. Bob Jones was one of their leaders. And Mike Bickle. And they came out styling themselves the Kansas City Prophets. In an interview that they gave, I think it was with Charisma Magazine, they said, our goal is to hit one out of three. They openly say this. You know, we're prophets, and we try to do one out of three, you know? In baseball, you know, if you can hit one out of three, you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. That's what we go for one out of three. What does Deuteronomy 18.22 say? It's 100%. You've got to have 100% accuracy or else you die. Right? Do we just forget the death penalty in verse 20? How are you going to know if this guy's a true prophet or a false prophet? Oh, just see what happens. Doesn't happen. So when TB Joshua predicted that Hillary Clinton would be elected back in November 2016... In case you've been asleep for eight years, she didn't get elected. He's a false prophet. And that's only one of many false prophecies. And the same thing's true for Benny Hinn. The same thing's true for Mike Bickle and the Kansas City prophets. And the same thing's true for almost all of them who come out publicly saying, in fact, there's a pastor in this town who has a website of his prophecies. And you can just scroll through and just see. Number one, there's two categories on that website, by the way. I put them in two categories. Some of the prophecies are so vague that it could be anything. I prophesied great blessings in February 2014. Well, I mean, define great blessings. The mall opened. Well, that's a great blessing, so it must be. How can you tell what happened, a great blessing in February 2014? How can you tell that? And then the other is categories of things that are far off or have multiple answers as well. Those aren't the kinds of prophecies in the Bible. Also, you'll find that many prophets of today consistently prophesy physical and earthly things. But where's the prophet who says, I'm going to prophesy this. You're going to learn much about humility in 2022. 
And by this time next year, you are going to love the fruit of the Spirit. You're going to be fasting and praying. And your wife will voluntarily say, this man is more like Christ. I'd like to hear someone prophesy that. Prophesy over me that this coming year, I will become gentle and kind. And then pray for me and let's come back next year. And see if I would love the Lord and kill my own sin. Well, there's so much here. I really wanted to show you. Ah, just quickly. Run back to chapter 13. Chapter 13. Deuteronomy 13. Verse 1, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, where if he spoke unto you saying, let us go after other gods, which you did not know, and let us serve them, you will not listen to the words of that prophet. Oh, so do you see, this prophet prophesies and his prophecy comes, it comes true, but you still look at his Bible doctrine. He made a prophecy and the prophecy came. But even then you don't say, oh, he's a true prophet. Well, then look a little further. What is he actually teaching? Does he preach the five solas? If you listen to him for a month, will you hear the cross of Christ lifted up? Will you see sin as black as it is and heaven glorious and hell wicked? Will you want to turn from your sin? Will you want to evangelize? When you hear him preach, does it make you want to give all of your money to reach unconverted people in Madagascar? Or when he preaches, does it sound more like Loving the world and the things in the world. Well, if a man does that, what should you do? Here's three scenarios. Turn over to verse 5. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Look at verse 6. This is the second scenario. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or who? The wife whom you love. Or your friend who is like your own soul, entices you secretly saying, let us go to other gods which you have not known. Verse seven, the gods of the people around you. Verse eight, you will not listen to him or hearken to him. Your eye will not pity him. Who? That's your wife. Neither will you spare, neither will you conceal him, but you will surely do what in verse nine? Your hand will be the first to put him to death. Who's the him? Your son or your daughter or your wife. Or your best friend. I I was not able to get all the material together for tonight. Perhaps in another week I'm going to do the New Testament use of the Old Testament law. And maybe give 10 or 12 directions for using these laws today in the church. We obviously do not think anyone should go out and kill a false prophet. I, I do not think that at all. So perhaps we'll come back and try to give some principles for how to use this. But here's the point. How does God feel about false prophets? Even if it's your wife, kill her. Now that's not the penalty for today. But his hatred of the sin is still the same. But we're in the law, we're in the dispensation of grace. This is not the time to say, hey, police, come. My wife just, uh, my wife just went to the mosque. You're not supposed to meet a Muslim and call the police. You're supposed to meet a Muslim and bring your Bible. But my point is, when the law is given, this is the way it's given. 
There's so many more good verses in this book, but let me just draw this all to a close with this. There's seven speeches. History. The law, 22 chapters. He jumps in after the law in chapters 27 and 28 and gives the curses. I got four minutes left in this recording. Let's see them. Go to chapter 28 quickly. Chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. I don't know when I'll get to this book again. You've got to see this. Deuteronomy 28. Because you've probably heard pastors preach about this. And I want you to know what it means. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1. It will come to pass. 28.1. If you will listen diligently to the voice of the Lord your God. To observe to do all his commandments which I command you. That the Lord your God will. Now for the next 14 verses there will be blessings. The Lord your God in verse 1 will set you on high above all the nations. Verse 2. All these blessings will come on you. Verse 3, you'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the field. Verse 4, blessed be the fruit of your body, the ground, the cattle, the increase. Verse 5, your basket, your store. Verse 6, blessed when you come in, blessed when you go out. Verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessings from the storehouses. Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a holy people. All the, verse 10, all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. Verse 11, the Lord will make you rich. Verse 11, verse 12, he'll open his good treasure and give you rain. Verse 13, this has got to be a famous one. The Lord will make you what? And not the tail. Have you ever heard any songs about this? I heard a song once when I was preaching at the Air Force Base a few years ago. And these guys got up and says, you will be the head, you will not be the tail. You will be the head over and over and over. Zero Christ, zero repentance. There's hundreds of people there from the Air Force Base. Apparently, everyone who works for the military in this country is converted. Apparently, everyone is a Christian because we heard a song in front of hundreds of people. You're the head, you're not the tail. You're the head, you're not. They don't. What, what are they forgetting? They're forgetting many, many things, but they're forgetting the very next section. It's verses 1 to 14 that are the blessings, but start in verse 15. But it will come to pass if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord your God to observe all his commandments, which I command you this day, what will happen then? Verse 15. All these curses will come on you. 16. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the field. 17. Cursed will be your basket. 18. You'll be cursed in your fruit of your body, the fruit of the land. Cursed will be your sheep and your cattle. Verse 19. You'll be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will curse you and vex you and rebuke you. He will set himself against you and destroy you. You will die quickly. Because of the wickedness of your doings, it goes on until verse 68. There are 54 verses of curses and 14 verses of blessings, but you've probably never heard anyone say, curses, curses, curses. That doesn't grow a crowd. If I tell you three and a half times more curses than blessings. And the curses are terrible Cannibalism is one of the curses. In chapter 28, verse 30, 53, you will eat your own children in verse 53. That happened in this country, in this region, in this area, Makata Municipality, 130 years ago. I have two sources, a Venda history book and a Tsonga history book. That happened here. It's in the prophecies. We don't say anything about this. We ignore these and neglect these. It's right there. If you're going to take the blessings, why not take the curses? Because in reality, 
all you care about is money. You don't care about repentance and humility and Christ and holiness. If the options were Christ and live in a shack or money and then be a superficial Christian, you might take the latter. There is so much in here. That's why I have to sing the song, chapter 